1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Paul says, Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And I couldn't disagree more. I'm sorry. No. No, no, no. No. Cheryl was here a moment ago. I don't know if she's taking a call or what, but if she was here to embarrass, I would say, oh, no. No, no, no. It is not good for a man not to touch a woman. But Paul says this. What's he saying? I know we call this 1 Corinthians, but you know by now it's not. It's actually, technically, at least 2 Corinthians. It's a letter of correctional response from Paul to the church at Corinth, and he is responding to a letter they had sent him, which was a response to a letter he had sent before. So did you track that? He sent them a letter, probably something like Romans. You know how he wrote to the church at Rome? Something instructive in theology and doctrine and truth and sent this off to them as he was ought to do with many of the churches that he was involved with or planted. They received the letter and in their arrogance, in their boastfulness, in their wisdom and knowledge, they wrote back and refuted the apostle. Well, how do you know that, Rick? Because he responds to their refutations. He comes right back to them. Contrary to popular opinion, and it is popular opinion out there, this letter isn't a friendly give and take in which Paul answers questions and offers advice to some new believers there in Corinth. In fact, three things become very obvious as we come to this point in the letter, and it is a turning point. We now are turning, changing directions from where we've been for six chapters by our reckoning, as we head into the seventh chapter, three things are very clear. Number one, that the Corinthians had taken exception to Paul's first letter to them. Secondly, they had written him point by point to say so. Bold. And thirdly, they bragged on their own wisdom and knowledge, which is obvious in Paul's response. In fact, remember in first in the first chapter, the second chapter, how he talked a lot about wisdom and said, I didn't come to you in wisdom. I didn't come to you in great rhetorical speech, the ability to, you know, profoundly speak. I came to you knowing Jesus Christ and Him crucified, period. Well, see, the Corinthian church had a wisdom problem. That is, they thought they had it. They had the sophos, the, the, the wiseness. They, they had that in their brains. They thought they were knowledgeable. And so, after a lengthy and powerful and spiritual foundation, which is the first six chapters, Paul now takes their letter point by point. And in some cases, like chapter 7, it's pretty straightforward. In other places, he takes them apart, revealing to them how profoundly stupid their wisdom truly is. Now, chapter 7 is not as hard-hitting as other chapters, and yet it is a potent response. Now, we know he's responding partially because of a little Greek phrase, perit day. Two words, peri and day, when put together, they're a transitional conjunction. The first two words of chapter 7, now concerning. Now concerning the things about which you wrote. Or now about the things that you wrote. 
He will use this little conjunctive uh, transition several times from here to the end of the book. Follow this with me. Just note this. Chapter 7, verse 1. Paraday. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And I still disagree. If you skip down to verse 25. Now concerning virgins. Okay, so that's another paraday. Now concerning, so he's going to go in this direction and talk about virgins. We will prayerfully get there tonight. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols. That's going to be now the third thing that he comes back to discuss and to correct with. In fact, note what he says. Concerning things sacrificed to idols, chapter 8, verse 1. We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant. But love edifies. Oh, knowledgeable Corinthians. So we already are starting to get the flavor that Paul's saying, look, you need to back down this whole knowledge thing because that's just going to puff you up. Now he goes on, after chapter 8, he will contrast this pagan idolatry with true spiritual worship. He'll get into that around chapter 11, dealing with worship. And my friends, this church needed to hear what he had to say about worship because they were out of control. They were nuts. When we read about what was going on at Corinth as described in chapter 11, it's shocking. And they called it worship. So he corrects them on that. And then chapter 12, skip ahead and look at chapter 12, verse 1. Now concerning peri day spiritual gifts. Brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. So he's going to respond to their questions or their statements, rather, their refutations about spiritual gifts. Probably something along the line of, look, we are very spiritually gifted, Paul, so get off our back. Chapter 16, finally, verse 1, Paul has this to say. Now concerning the collection for the saints. So he even deals with their offerings, their giving, their money. And each one of these, you could take it as a point-counterpoint. He writes a doctrinal letter to them. They respond with points of their own. And now Paul is in the counterpoint to each one of these things. And by the outline of these transitions through the rest of the letter, Paul is correcting prideful, selfish, and sometimes downright rebellious attitudes. Can I just tell you that's no fun? When you happen to be a rebel yourself and you're called upon to correct wrong attitudes, when you know of your own flaws and failures and sins of years behind you, and you have to turn around and and tell people, and I'll tell you, the only way I'm even able to do that is by simply teaching the Word of God. If I can teach His Word, I can hide behind the Bible. And my friends, sometimes that's exactly what I do. Now I'm dealing with myself, with the Lord. And responding to Him with what He says and how I'm convicted. And yet I still have to sit up here and read this letter of Paul and and explain it and sometimes get a little hot under the collar with things that I see or I'm aware of. Please know that we are all in the same boat. We are all reading the same letter and we are all servants of the same God and Lord who is convicting every single one of us. And He's calling us all to lives of holiness, not the lives that we would choose so often, but the lives that He would choose for us. 
So with that all in mind, we, we turn this corner now, and verse 1 of chapter 7, again now, concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, don't skip by that too quickly. Paul is not making a doctrinal statement of his own here. I partially know that because it runs counter to his Jewish heritage. What does his Jewish heritage say? Well, the Lord said about Adam in the garden, Genesis 2.18, it is not good for a man to be alone. It's not good. So if it's not good for a man to be alone, how can you say it's not good for a man to touch a woman? He gave Adam Eve. Naked, I might add. And God is not the kind of God who gives such a grace and then says, oh, (laughs) don't touch. In fact, it seems to me the only thing they weren't supposed to touch was the fruit. Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you may not have anything to do, but you know he, he didn't say anything about Eve. I can just see Adam listening for the second law, and that was the only one, the tree, and he's like, right. <laughs> But it is not good for a man to touch a woman. Hey, it's not good for a man to be alone. And I do not believe that Paul is making a doctrinal statement, but once again, he is now quoting a statement made by the Corinthians. This was one of their wise statements. It's not good for a man to touch a woman. Paul is not making that as a doctrinal statement because he turns right around and says, well, because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife. In other words, touch her in godly marriage. That's what this is for. And Paul's looking at the church of Corinth and saying, most of y'all are not up to this. Not touching a woman thing. So let's just deal with that right up front. The Corinthians appear, as we read this letter, to be vacillating between two serious extremes, and they are typical extremes. The extreme of lax sexuality, on the one hand, and on the other hand, hyper-spirituality. Both are happening at Corinth. And Paul is now likely addressing those in the church who are either preaching sexual abstinence in marriage or forbidding marriage altogether. We're now spiritual beings. We're born again. Yes, we are. So therefore, being spiritual, being born again, we should have nothing to do with the flesh. Well, then you would die because you'd have to stop eating. And yet this attitude was pervasive and it was an arrogant hyper-spirituality. And as I mentioned Sunday, and I will read it again to you, and I know you've heard this many times, but Paul will tell Timothy, this is an issue in the church. This was an issue at Ephesus. And this will be, Paul says, an issue at the end of the age for the church. The Spirit explicitly says, 1 Timothy 4.1, that in latter times some will fall away from the faith paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, who forbid marriage, or as I said, that word also can mean mutilate, who cut off marriage, who say it's not acceptable, not allowable, and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared by those who believe and know the truth. This is what I call heart-jerking which is similar to knee-jerking, but it's in a spiritual way. 
When you have a knee-jerk reaction to something, you react too quickly and you haven't thought about it. Well, a heart-jerk reaction is when a person becomes a follower of Jesus Christ, and especially those who come from an overtly immoral background that was just wild and uncontrollable, oftentimes that person will become a follower of Jesus and they will tend to do one of two things. Either continue in that lifestyle or they will become hyper-spiritual. Heart-jerk. A heart-jerk reaction to the opposite extreme and now judging all those who were just like they used to be. And I've seen that happen many, many times. Someone becomes holy and instantly holier than thou. It's like, do you remember who you were? Do you remember Paul's list? And he said, such were some of you. Have you forgotten these things? Hyper-spiritual Corinthians? Listen, God gave us the ability to reason. And He expects us to use reason. As we study His Word, not to all of a sudden become as legalistic as the Pharisees were, but to reason through these things, to apply these things to real life. Actual living. And it is unrealistic to say that a couple married 10 years are now going to stop touching each other because that's what God requires, even though God is the one who gave marriage in the first place. That's just not reasonable. The Lord said in Isaiah 1.18, Come, let us reason together. The Gospel is not unreasonable. The Bible is, is not over our heads and, and, and some kind of book filled with bizarreties. It's not like the Koran, one third of which is absolute gibberish that Muslims can't even read. Did you know that? The Bible is wholly reasonable. And the Lord invites us to reason, and faith in Jesus, therefore, is a spiritually reasonable thing. Doesn't mean that it's not passionate, doesn't mean we're not convicted, that our lives are not radically changed, they should be. But we are yet reasonable people. Concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman which many commentators in Agri believe that that's one of the things they wrote, Paul says, but because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife. And by the way, that word immoralities, what does that mean? Sexual immoralities. Pornea, it's that same word. Because of sexual immoralities, a man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. Sounds like Paul is not saying that it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Am I misreading that? He goes on in verse 3, The husband must fulfill, and you might want to circle this word, his duty to his wife. And likewise also the wife to her husband. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't like the sound of this, and I know where you're going, Pastor. Verse 4, The wife does not have authority over her own body. But the husband does. Now, if he had stopped right there, I would have been like, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But he goes on. And likewise, also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Paul is dealing with the pleasures that God created in a godly marriage for a godly marriage. 
Now, let's be reasonable. There are many pleasures that God created for our own good. Food can be pleasurable. That's cool. We're not supposed to... If you've ever seen The Matrix, they eat this goo. This, this, I don't even know, it looks like bad cream of wheat. And it has all the nutrients and all the vitamins and everything in it that they need. I'm not suggesting that you watch The Matrix. I saw this back in a more simple time in my life. But they, they pass around bowls of this and that's what they eat for their meals. And it has everything that they need, but it's disgusting. God didn't do that with our food, did He? He created food to be enjoyed. That you should, on occasion, get a smile on your face after that big bite of burger. That's a good thing. Thank you. I was hoping I'd get an amen. When the fries are cooked just right, when you pull into the driveway of In-N-Out on your way down to Southern California, it is okay. Because God created food to be enjoyed, not just ingested. And He created sex to be enjoyed in the context of a godly marriage because there it is embedded, no pun intended, it is embedded literally with faith. With faithfulness and trust and intimacy and a guarantee that I am with you in this. Laughter is a pleasure. Music is a pleasure. Learning is a pleasure. God gave us pleasurable things. He did not intend for us to mow our ways through lives just bummed out and it's just so tough to be a Christian. I've shared with you before, Christians should be the happiest people on the planet. The, the greatest laughter should come from our churches. The most joy should be shared among us as believers. And so sex in a godly marriage is good. As God said again of Adam, alone in the garden, that is not good. It is not good for man to be alone. So Paul comes out the gate and counters this Corinthian call to sexual abstinence in marriage. They're telling married couples or someone there in Corinth is saying, you've got to stop. You gotta abstain. Some of these new believers in Corinth are going, okay. As a sweat breaks out on their brow. Now, Paul also calls this a duty, an obligation. Some of you ladies are gonna be really mad at me for saying this. You have an obligation to your husband in this area. Not because I said so, but because the Bible tells me so. I never thought that song would have such marvelous application. (laughs) The Bible is clear. Ladies, you have an obligation to your husbands. Husbands, you have an obligation to your wives in this area. Now, I get it. In our independent culture, people have a problem with any kind of obligation. Whenever you say this is obligatory. Well, listen, if any married man or married woman in Christ does not like the idea of their spouse having authority over their own body, I refer you back to the last two verses of chapter 6, which read, verse 19, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? 
You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. If you're not married, glorify God in your body. If you're married, glorify God in your body. How can I do that? You can do that by following through with your obligation to your spouse in this area. And you are, I know, I know it sounds weird, but you are glorifying God when you are meeting the need of your spouse. When you are helping your spouse deal with what would otherwise be a very difficult situation in this world. Now, the, the tendency that it's typical, usually it's more difficult for men than it is for women. Men have tended, at least in prior cultures, to be the ones who are more uh, at risk of lust and of being kind of drawn to look or to act even outside of marriage. And so, wives, I never, ever, ever, ever would blame a woman for a husband straying. But I would say to any of you wives, if you want to be godly to your husband, give them a reason not to stray. It's not your fault if they do. But help them not. You have an obligation to the Lord who now has authority over your body to give your body to your husband. And husbands, the same is true for you. What's shocking is that in this culture, women are straying as much as men. Pornography is becoming as much an issue for women as it is for men which was never the case before. So, married or unmarried, Paul sets the standard, he makes it clear, and he is speaking by the authority of God and the Holy Spirit, glorify God in your body. And by the way, if the primary reason that the Lord created marriage, as he said, is because it is not good for a man to be alone, I think there may be a secondary reason that we can all agree with. And that is that it is not good for a man to be self-centered. And if anything is going to break you of selfishness, marriage will do it. (laughs) And rightly so. To, to, To get me to stop thinking always about myself and to start realizing there is someone else who has needs and wants. Who has a language, you've all heard about love languages. Cheryl's love language is service. Acts of service. Well, great. So I'm taking out the trash and I'm doing the dishes. You know, and of course I'm saying, did you notice I did the dishes? Because I have a different love language. But we're not going to talk about that. It is not good for the man to be self-centered. And when you give yourself over to love and to serve one another for a lifetime, you make that marital commitment. Remember, it's for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, to love, honor, and cherish till death do you part. When you make that vow, you quickly find yourself in a relationship that demands, note takers, jot this down, unselfish duty. Unselfish duty. A wife to a husband, a husband to a wife, unselfish duty. That is the first key. We're going to look at five things in this passage. As Paul deals with this, verse 5, he goes even further. He says, stop depriving one another. I'm like, hallelujah. Someone finally said it. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again. 
So Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. The context is clear when he says stop depriving each other. He is talking about sexual intimacy. When he says come back together again, he is talking about sexual intimacy. He is saying to husbands and wives, don't put a whole lot of distance between your moments of sexual intimacy. And I can talk about this freely with you because this is Bible, man. Praise the Lord. And it's more proof of the hyper-spirituality, at least among some of the Corinthian Christians, where Paul is now saying, look, physical contact is your marital obligation. Well, I don't like that, Pastor. Well, I'm sorry. I didn't choose to marry him, sis. You did. Sex as a requirement... As an obligation, the word here is ophile. Some of you might think, well, that's just awful. No, ophile. Ophile, which means conjugal obligation. It is a word that specifically means you are obliged to sexual intimacy in a marriage. But there's a spiritual reason behind all of this teaching. And you need to not miss this as we go through the chapter. Don't miss what Paul is really saying. As he deals with physical issues... Don't miss the spiritual behind it. You see, while the natural man tends to emphasize immediate physical pleasure, the Bible teaches better than that. 1 John 2.17 The world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. So there are things that God does. You know, I believe that He created in and out I mean, what a great hamburger. No, I really do. And and I believe that because it tastes so good. And He created it in such a way that I could enjoy a hamburger and and not have to, you know, find other ways of fulfilling the need for feed. Okay? He gives us these good things and, and, and He says, now, I want you to fulfill that desire. It's okay to enjoy this, to enjoy that, to enjoy the other. In this context, and as far as sex goes in the godly marriage, that's a good thing. Because then it helps you deal with the desire and the lust so that you don't get so focused on that that that's all you're thinking about because, my friends, it's going to pass away. It's going to pass away. It's not going to be a factor forever. And so the Spirit would even see marital sex as a spousal responsibility to help guard against the lure of extramarital lust that's just going to go away. So, what is the right attitude in a godly marriage? Listen to me clearly, because I'm not going to do this message again. (laughs) Sex is best understood as an unselfish act. It is best enjoyed as an unselfish act rather than a selfish one. The sharing of the body in a sanctified, God-ordained marriage is wholly good. And the only exception that we see here in verse 5 that Paul says, one exception to the obligation is prayer. All of a sudden, all these wives are just praying all the time. I can't just... I'll be right in, honey. Just go, go pray. You know, three hours later, he's sawing logs. She's like, Whew. no. He says, he says, stop depriving one another, except, except for prayer. 
And I think there's a great way to view this, my friends. We could call it sexual fasting. Sexual fasting. And that's a wonderful way to consider it because (laughs) how long can you fast? You understand what I'm saying? Eventually you need to eat again. And it's the same with sex in a marriage. It's okay to take a pause. It's okay to say, you know what, for this week or for this two-week period, we're going to really, time that we would spend in intimacy with each other, we're actually going to spend in intimacy with the Lord. But at the end of two weeks, we're going to come back together as a husband and wife should, biblically speaking, so that all the lust of the world and the things that would draw us away from that beautiful intimacy that we've just developed and just engaged in with the Lord won't be lost because we're starting to look for things that are ungodly. So take a pause and pray. But Paul says, come back together again. Now, bros, I told you on Sunday, don't be quoting verse 5 to your wife. Or she will be quoting verse 6 to you. But I say this by way of concession, not of command, he says. (laughs) It's a concession. Paul is trying to help this, this very confused group of Christians understand this is not a command, it is a concession. The sharing of the body for the sake of avoiding sexual immorality is a safeguarding gift between husband and wife. God gave it. And so Paul says, let's be reasonable here. Ladies, let's be reasonable here. Gentlemen, this is to be shared. And it is to be part of your marriage together. In the institution of godly marriage, unselfishness is nurtured. Unselfishness is developed even in conjugal obligation. Verse 7. Yet, he says, I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. I wish that all men were as I am. Now listen, Paul is single. And from his perspective, he says, you know, I think that's the best place to be. Well, of course you think that, Paul, because that's where you are. (laughs) You might say that, but he makes a case for this. And some, some have that gift. Some are able to be single-minded, unselfish in their duty to the gospel and to the Lord, such that the, the lure of the flesh and the desire of the flesh really doesn't have the same kind of pull. Their focus is so much on Jesus. That was Paul. He is... All in for the gospel. He is 100% on fire for the Lord. And so Paul now begins to talk about, secondly in our notes, unmarried discipline. Unmarried discipline. Unselfish duty. And now unmarried discipline. I wish that all men were even as I myself am. Well, how was he? How was Paul in terms of relationship? Never married? Is he a confirmed old bachelor who just doesn't get marriage and understand these things? Probably not. Probably not. If I had my guess, and it's a guess, I can't say this for sure, and this is just an opinion, but Paul was probably a widower. For two reasons. One, Paul was a rabbi. And the rabbis held it in highest esteem, highest regard. If you're a rabbi, you are a married man. 
They understood what Paul says. Even when he talks to the shepherds, the elders of a church, he says, each one must be husband of one wife. You're not going to put a single man in among the shepherds of a church. Why? Because there are things you don't understand yet. Things you will not learn until you're in that position of marriage. And so Paul says, I want them coupled up. I want a man in that role of leadership. Yes, but I want to make sure that he's married because he does not have it all together. And he needs his wife. And the church needs his wife to be talking with him and praying with him and influencing the way he thinks and processes. And so rabbis were that way. Also, we recognize, Paul makes a comment about how at the stoning of Stephen, that he cast his vote for that stoning. Well, if he cast his vote, some think that perhaps he was on the Sanhedrin. He was part of the Jewish ruling council. You were not on the Sanhedrin unless you were married. So it's very possible that Paul had at one time been married, but is now single. Before he met Jesus on the Damascus Road, something perhaps happened to the wife that Paul may have once had. Again, I can't say that as a matter of fact. It doesn't matter as far as salvation and spiritual thing goes, but it's an interesting thought. But however you view him, a widower or an old bachelor, either way, Paul is not married at this time. He is a single man and he says, that's a good thing. He goes on in verse 8 and says, I say to the unmarried and to widows... That it is good for them if they remain even as I. Which is another hint that he's both unmarried and perhaps a widower. And then he says, but if they do not have self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn. (laughs) Turn or burn. And your New American Standard Bibles add the phrase, better than to burn with passion. Well, with passion is not in there, but that is the implication. Because Paul is not talking about hell, he's talking about passion. He's talking about lust. It is better to marry than to walk around lustful all the time. Better to have that dealt with in a godly marriage where, remember, the wife has an obligation to her husband and the husband has an obligation to his wife. That's the right context. You know, I was reading this whole idea of better to marry than burn, and I was thinking, fire is really good in a hearth. You know, on a cold October night, if we ever get a hard freeze in Washington again, and you got the fire going in the fireplace, it is a welcome thing, it is a cheering thing, it's a warming thing. Everybody loves a good fire in the hearth. But if you walk into the room and your child has moved part of that fire onto the carpet, not a good thing. That's what we would call an unfortunate event. (laughs) It's not good. Marriage is the hearth of passion. If fire is good in a hearth, passion is good in a marriage. That's where it belongs. That's where it creates warmth and brings cheer and good things. But Paul says, if possible, if you can do it, if you're single, stay that way. Better to remain celibate. He wasn't the first to say it. Matthew 19. I'll read this to you, or you can turn there a few books back. Matthew chapter 19, verse 4. Jesus is speaking with the Pharisees who are testing Him, asking about divorce. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? They believed it was. They wanted to see where He was going to fall on the issue. Is He of the Hillel school of rabbinical thought or the Shammai school of more conservative rabbinical thought? 
And they knew this was a divisive question. Jesus responds. It's one of my favorite responses He ever gave. Listen, I do it in every marriage that I preside over and I will this weekend. Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two. That's the problem in marriages. Too many marriages think they're still two. No, He says, They are one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Now they said to him, Well, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart. (laughs) I mean, just face plants them with that answer. Why are we allowed to have a certificate of divorce? I divorce thee, I divorce thee, I divorce thee, and they're done. And Jesus says, because you're hard-hearted. That's the real problem. And I say to you from the beginning, it has not been this way. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, pornea, and marries another woman, commits adultery. Jesus' word. Well, the disciples said to him, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, (laughs) it's better not to marry No, they're reacting. They're having kind of a heart-jerk reaction to what he said. Well, I'm just not going to get married at all. Yeah, good luck with that, Peter. (laughs) Actually, Peter had a mother-in-law, so we know he already couldn't not marry. Right? Verse 11, But he said to them, Not all men can accept that statement, but only those to whom it has been given. What statement, Jesus? That for some it's better not to marry. It actually is better for some people. Not for everyone. But Jesus says, for some. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. So those who are born without the ability to engage in that, from some kind of a birth defect, that's the first type of person he mentions. Then he mentions, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. Which I would add, unfortunately. And then thirdly, he says, there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, and he who is able to accept this, let him accept it. And in that third case, he's talking about voluntary celibacy. He's not, by the way, necessarily talking about going uh, a guy going out and castrating himself so that he can be of better service in the kingdom. It's not what Jesus is saying. It's kind of like when Jesus made the comment, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. Well, we would all be blind. Every one of us would be bumping around the walls because we'd be pulling our eyes out and pulling our arms off and ripping our ears off our heads every time we were offended by something that we saw or heard or touched. No, Jesus is saying, look, for some, celibacy is a good thing. And they should listen to that. And some single people will remain single. Paul did. Whether he was married before or not, he remained single now for the rest of his life because he was so focused, there was no room in his heart for anything else but Jesus. He was focused on Jesus and the kingdom. Now, Origen, one of the early church fathers, took this literally and castrated himself for the kingdom. Interesting. That what Jesus meant? I really don't think so. But again, there are those who are gifted with celibacy as a discipline, which can be beneficial, can be a godly thing. And in this sex-saturated culture, that is a hard thing to even hear. 
Because we are so used to sex being where it's all about. In a culture where, and young people especially listen, in this culture, people will tell you that being a virgin is shameful. That's the stupidest thing you will ever hear on a high school campus. You're a virgin? Oh, really? <laughs> yes, I am. And I think the greatest response I once heard a teenage girl say, Anytime I want, I can become just like you, but you can never again become like me. <laughs> yeah, what? <laughs> it's shameful? I mean, that's really where our culture is at. If you are not sleeping with the person you're dating by at least a second date, I mean, what is wrong with you? What's wrong with you? Perhaps you're a godly person. And the Lord elevates this. God sees virginity and singleness. Listen, if you're in this position, you need to know this. God sees it as a badge of honor. It is a good thing. Maybe you are sitting here listening while I'm talking about marriage going, has nothing to do with me. I'm never going to be there. I'm just you know, in a single world for the rest of my... Listen. God sees singleness as a badge of honor. Isaiah 56, verse 4. He says, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant, to them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name which will not be cut off. Ladies, if you are not able to have children, there's your verse. He's speaking to eunuchs, but he's speaking specifically to those who are unable to have children for one reason or another. And he says, listen, I'm going to give you a name better than that of sons and daughters after you. I'm going to give you an everlasting name that will not be cut off. Singleness is a good thing. To be holy and completely devoted unto the Lord is a blessing. And there are those who are called to live that blessing. There is a future Blessing for virginal celibacy. That's wonderful. But, of course, if you find yourself burning with desire, Proverbs 18.22 says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. He doesn't say he who finds a good wife. He just says he who finds a wife. (laughs) Verse 10. But... Back to the married, Paul goes. But to the married, I give instructions. Not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And that the husband should not divorce his wife. Don't think for a moment that Paul departed at all from the teaching of Jesus. He did not. And he does not, even as we go through this chapter. If you're married, stay with him. What about this? What about that? We can come up with all kinds of whatabouts. We're talking uh, establishment here. We're talking foundation here. We're talking truth here. We start with that. We can discuss these other things at another time. But right now, Paul is making the point, if you are married, you stay married. But it's difficult. You stay married. But I just don't love him anymore. I'm sorry. I don't see that caveat. We fell out of love. I've told you before, then fall back in. Well, I don't feel it. Well, since when was feelings 
the determination for a healthy marriage. I guarantee you, and I'm going to say this in honor of my wife, I can guarantee you there are times where she's not feeling the love for her husband. (laughs) And sometimes that's fair. (laughs) What does feelings have to do with it? You said, till death do us part. You said, I will stay with you. You make a decision and you stand by that. Now, stay with me, folks. I know there's a lot of pain in this area. I get that. But again, we... We gotta deal with foundation. What does the word teach? And then we talk about grace. Grace and truth. We'll get there in a minute here, next hour. Uh, we're at number three now. Number three is unbroken dedication. He's talking in a marriage about unbroken dedication. And the Bible does not, in any place, support irreconcilable differences for divorce. But unbroken devotion or dedication. It's evident that the hyper-spirituality of some at Corinth are promoting and advocating divorce for spiritual reasons. That this is actually part of what's going on. If you're having a problem being sexually pure in your marriage, abstaining in your marriage, then you just need to divorce. What? Paul says, absolutely not. In no way. And God says no to divorce. And it's one of the most difficult areas to talk about in the church today because the church is so wounded by divorce. It has happened to so many. It has happened to people. It has been chosen by some. It's it's gone on. And and the background among so many of divorce who can say, yeah, I'm, I'm divorced. People don't want to talk about it. It's what we were talking about Sunday. People don't want to talk about sexual immorality because, well, it's better to sweep it under the carpet and not deal with it. But see, the Bible deals with it. And so we must. So much divorce has left Christians wounded. Please understand, brother or sister, if that's you, that divorce breaks God's heart far more than it broke yours. That if you think it hurt, and even if you were the one who chose it, isn't that amazing that those who choose divorce and want out find out how painful that is? And for those who did not choose it, and who ache because of it, I can guarantee you God is right in there hurting along with you. Because the Bible says very clearly, Malachi 2.16, I hate divorce, but it nowhere says God hates the divorced. He does not hate the divorcee. He hates what happened to the person. He hates that choice that was made because he knows the pain. And he feels it himself. And remember, they said, why did Moses command us to give a certificate of divorce? And Jesus said, because of your hardness of heart. Because sometimes in a marriage it's supposed to be about unselfishness, selfishness creeps in so deeply that people become hard-hearted and unable to accept each other anymore. And so, in Mosaic law, there was a certificate of divorce for the hardness of heart. But God says, Malachi 2.16, I hate divorce. I hate him. And him who covers himself or his garment with wrong, and by the way, the context there is he doesn't hate him, but he hates the covering of a person with wrong. 
And so he says, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. If you want to study marriage and divorce and what, and what the Bible teaches about it and what God really says about it, if you'd like to go through a study, we did this in Malachi chapter 2 in a study called The Message of Marriage. And if you didn't hear that, I would strongly encourage you to go back and listen. The Message of Marriage. And hear what it is the Scriptures say because we really took some time and looked into that. But God hates divorce. He does not hate the divorced. He hates divorce. God hates things that hurt His children. He always has. He always will. So so then, does verse 11 mean that um, a person who's divorced can never marry again except for the reason of sexual infidelity? I mean... In a situation, and this is this is a serious issue in the church, is it not? If a person goes through a divorce for any reason other than their spouse was sexually unfaithful, that's the out. That's the one that, that Jesus says, except for marital unfaithfulness. If that person's unfaithful, then you are not bound to the marriage. You are free. But what about all the other instances where there wasn't sexual infidelity? But there was something else, some other reason that the divorce took place. Can that person then never remarry again? I would first tell you to go back to chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians and look at verse 12. And listen. All things are lawful for me. Not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me but I will not be mastered by anything. What are you saying, Pastor? Are you just declaring? Listen, Okay. side note here. Just because I say it doesn't mean you have to agree. Just because I declare it doesn't necessarily mean it's truth unless I am quoting word-for-word Scripture. Let's be reasonable. Think it through. You may disagree with things that I say. Okay. You can be wrong and I still love you. I can be wrong and I hope you still love me. Are you saying, Rick, that that there are that that once you're divorced that you can remarry and it's no big deal? I'm saying under grace. All things are lawful. Not all things are profitable. It may not be profitable for you to remarry. That may be the worst thing you could do. And the reality is if you've gone through divorce and you are currently single and you're in that single state, you need to think very seriously about it because with every marriage comes more likelihood of another divorce. That's just statistical. So it may not be profitable. All things are lawful. Listen, here's my point. There are two sides here of the same bad coin that Paul has to address at Corinth. Side number one, spiritual legalism which is those who bind others to heavy loads that they themselves don't have to carry. And one of those is the whole view of divorce and remarriage in the church. And I think we have to take a gracious look at and understand what's going on there. And there's a greater point that we're coming to here. But spiritual legalism is as wrong as the other side of the coin, which is spiritual license. And that is those who trample the grace of God by taking license with everything. That it doesn't matter if I divorce and remarry. I just want to. I just don't want to be with this person anymore. So I'm going to be with that person. And whatever, God's good. God and I are good. It's fine. It's not fine. It's serious. 
I will say this, and I said this back when we studied Matthew 19, and I still hold this view. My view, my opinion. That he who divorces his wife and marries a woman for any reason other than infidelity commits adultery. But, but so you're saying I'm an adulterer? I'm saying you committed adultery. Because that's what adultery is. Just by simple definition, adultery is being with someone other than with the one to whom you became one flesh. If you go outside of that union, except for marital unfaithfulness, and you connect with another person, even in another marriage, yes, you've committed adultery. I reject, personally, the notion of ongoing adultery. Well, now you're just in an adulterous state. So you need to now divorce the second wife and go back to the first one. Uh Uh-uh. Well, that's just dumb. Really? You're going to do that? No. No, you make this marriage godly now. You turn to Jesus and you let Him know that what happened before, you. I'm sorry, but now, now, you go forward with the Lord in the state that you are in. And I'm getting a little ahead of myself. But understand this. Be reasonable, folks. We have to live in the balance of grace and truth. And the truth is, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us. Some have gone through divorce, and it was ungodly divorce. And you know that. And I'm not pointing fingers. I have not been divorced, but I'll tell you what, i got plenty of sin on my own. And I am not the one to sit here and judge. And then the one to put a heavy burden on you saying, you must remain unmarried the rest of your life or you are unholy and godless. (laughs) That's not my position. Grace and truth. Seek both. For those who are married right now, seek unbroken dedication in your marriage. For those who are divorced, And single, for those who are divorced and remarried, seek to honor God now in the state that you are in. Can you do that? I said this on Sunday, the marvelous thing about the grace of Jesus Christ is we're able to start right now. I don't start last night. I don't start two years ago. When I recognize where I am, when my sin choices are highlighted and I become convicted, I start right then. I don't go chasing down the halls of 51 years of Pastor Rick's life to try and fix it all. I can't. It's impossible. It's too much of a mess back there. So I start now. And I go forward with Jesus now. And if you are married, remember this that your marriage has the opportunity to portray Jesus Christ and His bride. Ephesians 5.32 This mystery is great. I am speaking, Paul says, with reference to Christ and the church. He's just been talking about marriage. And he reveals to them, actually I wasn't talking about marriage at all. I was talking about Jesus and the church. Nevertheless, Paul says, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband and the best way for that to happen, love and respect in a marriage, is for Jesus to be at the center of the marriage. It's to invite in the very person of grace and truth himself. Verse 12. But to the rest I say, not the Lord. Oh, that's interesting. Paul's going to give us an opinion. And he very clearly says, this is not from God. This is, this is my opinion. Now, he's an apostle. He's a man whose opinion is probably worth listening to far more even you know, than my high and mighty opinions. Listen to him. 
To the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. Paul is now addressing this because the hyper-spiritual at Corinth are advocating dumping non-believing spouses. Your spouse doesn't come to church. Why? Well, he's still, you know, going off to the temple of Aphrodite. He's still a pagan. Oh, divorce. And Paul says, my opinion is you stick. You stay. Well, your wife, I haven't seen her at the local Bible study. Yeah, uh, she comes from a long line of pagans. (laughs) Divorce her. Get out. You have a right. You're a Christian. She's not. Divide that union and get out. It's unholy. It's ungodly. And Paul says, whoa, 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 whoa. And Paul now gives two reasons for maintaining a marriage even with an unbeliever. And both are what we might call, number four, unbelieving deliverance. Unbelieving deliverance. Verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. What does that mean? Does that mean that the unbeliever is saved by the faith of the believer? No, it never means that. You are only saved by making a faith decision for Jesus yourself. No one can do that for you, not even a spouse. He doesn't say the unbeliever is saved by the believing spouse. He says sanctified. What he's saying is that through the believer, a marriage is acceptable and consecrated unto God because one is a believer. So because one person in the marriage is a follower of Jesus, is a believer, the union itself is consecrated. God views the union itself as a holy union, even though half of the union is unholy, unconnected to God. That's marvelous. So that means if you're in a union like that, and many Christians are, it's tragic, it's difficult. It's If you're not married yet, and again, if you're a young person, seek another believer. Because some of the hardest uh, conversations that I've had in the church have been with people whose spouses don't believe. And it breaks the heart. But if the spouse doesn't believe, the spouse doesn't believe, and, and you know you do, both the union and the children are validated by God by the believing spouse. Well, so does that mean that the unbeliever in a marriage is an unholy person? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, of course. The only reason I'm holy is because of Jesus. If I'm not in Jesus Christ, I'm not holy, period. That's just simple. That's why I need the blood of Jesus to cleanse me and to wash me and to make me whole. And Paul is not saying that the unbelieving spouse or children, again, he's not saying they're saved by the faith of the believing spouse, but he is saying this, they can be. And that's the critical point. They can be. Skip down to verse 16. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? The best thing a believing husband or wife can do with an unbelieving spouse is remain and be Jesus to them. Stay put and be Jesus in the marriage. Show them grace like they will see nowhere else. Show them understanding. Show them obligation. 
Put yourself out for them. Unselfishly be Jesus in the marriage. Peter says the same thing. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. He says, In the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if they are disobedient to the word, they may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Unbelieving deliverance. That is, the unbeliever may experience their own spiritual deliverance from their lost state because the believing spouse loves them enough to stay put and be Jesus. However, where the unbeliever is hard-hearted, rejecting the faith of the believer, there is another sort of deliverance, verse 15. Yet, if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. This is so important. God has called us to peace. Literally, he says, God has called you to peace. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. You have an unbelieving spouse and they want a divorce and they want out. You don't fight. You don't claw. You don't force. You seek peace. You love them and you let them go, Paul says. Now, for those who would use this as a proof text for remarriage, I need to say something. I do not believe I did yesterday, I don't today. I do not believe, as some argue, that this is a statement of Pauline privilege. That is, that the believer, if an unbeliever divorces a believer, that the believer is now just free to marry again. I don't think that's what he's talking about. That, by the way, is canon law in the Catholic Church because of that verse. The Catholic Church states that if you are married to a non-believing, a non-Catholic, and they want to leave, you can divorce them and you're free. And you can remarry all you want, no problem. And that's what the Catholics have taken out of this. Gordon Fee puts it this way. Please listen. In a context in which people are arguing to dissolve marriage, Paul would scarcely be addressing the issue of remarriage. It's not the point of the passage. It's not the point of the verse. Fee says one is simply not under bondage to maintain the marriage. And I do believe that that is what he is saying. Listen to the verse again, verse 15. If the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. That is, you are not bound to maintain or to fight for that marriage. You can let them go. However, that doesn't mean that you can just turn around and be free to marry again. That doesn't really sound fair. Listen, from Paul's point of view. The only thing that truly releases a person from death, or from marriage. (laughs) Is that a Freudian slip? No, I don't think so. The only thing that truly releases a person from marriage, and again we could add, with the exception of sexual infidelity, is death. Down in verse 39, Paul will say that a wife is bound as long as her husband lives. But if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. So if you married an unbeliever and he died, you get married a second time, marry a believer. Why? It'd be a whole lot less painful when he passes away, for one thing. 
That is the only reason Paul gives, and it's consistent with Jesus, that if the spouse dies, then you are, yes, free to remarry. Now, here's the thing, though, and stay with me on this. Paul is not writing a new law. As so often the church has taken 1 Corinthians chapter 7, this is not a new law to replace the old law. Or a new law to undergird and support the old law. In fact, I will go a step further and tell you the Bible is not a book of legal ins and outs. It is a book about what? What? Jesus. Jesus. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life. It is these that testify of me, Jesus says. The word of God is about the word of God. It is not a law book. Now there are truths and there are we are called to holiness and we can pattern our lives after the things that we study and learn and understand in the scriptures. Absolutely. But that's not the point of the scripture. God did not give the scripture to bind us up. He gave us the scripture for freedom in Christ Jesus. And, and here's the reason I point this out. We Christians are always looking for loopholes in what we think is a law. It's not a law. What about divorce and remarriage? Paul's not talking about remarriage right now. Well, yeah, but, but, but we've got to understand what, if we can remarry or not. I mean, what's the loophole? Where's the caveat there, Pastor, that allows me to do what I want to do? And the whole passage, Paul is not talking about what you want to do. Remember, he's talking about unselfishness. He's talking about your obligation to another. He's talking about your obligation to the Lord and your devotion to Him. He's not talking about this. We're always looking for ways out. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. We're looking for loopholes. God is looking for the lost. God would say to you and to me tonight, brothers and sisters, He would say, live your life in such a way that lost people can be saved because that's an eternal issue. All the rest is passing away. The world and its lusts, it's not going to remain. It's passing away. It is not the primary issue. Yeah, but what about remarriage? It's not the primary issue. Oh, so I have to be alone for the rest of my life? Hey, you could die tomorrow. What's one day? (laughs) Or Jesus may be here at the end of the week. I came home today, uh, this afternoon, and my family was all gone. I called Cheryl. I was so glad she answered because I thought, it's it's one of two things, the rapture or ice cream. But I wasn't sure (laughs) which one it was. We get so hung up on the issues of now. I can't believe God would make me be lonely my whole life, really your whole life. You realize about a billion years into eternity, you're not even going to remember your life on this planet. You know how insignificant our lives in terms of time and struggle and difficulty and worry and all the rest, how insignificant they really will be once we're home with Jesus? Do you understand why the Spirit is fighting so hard in this fellowship to get us to release and believe in Him instead of trying to seek what works best for me? Well, this is my lifestyle. i got to see how this will fit. Forget about your lifestyle. What does the Lord want? That's what Paul is talking about. If you are in a marriage with an unbeliever, Paul would tell you right here and now, stay and pray. Stay and pray. The issue of remarriage is not even on the table for discussion. So I'm not going to talk about that. I will ask this question. Why is it that we human beings are so prone to seeking escape? We just want out. 
I'm in school, I want to finish school. If I've got a job, I want another job. If I'm in a marriage, I want to get out of the marriage. If I'm convicted, I don't want it. If I'm given responsibility, I'd really like to pass it on to someone else. You know, what is it about us? Is it boredom? Is it frustration? Is it, is it just that the grass is always greener over there? And we're looking. Why can't we just be content where we are? And that brings me to the central theme of the entire chapter. Oh, I know where we are in the chapter. Listen, we're going to actually come back in this next section we're going to study a week from Sunday. But I want to read through it because this is the heart of what Paul really is talking. He's not talking about marriage. Did you know that? He's not talking about remarriage. He's not talking about divorce. He's not talking about celibacy. These are all symptomatic of the greater issue. And here it is, verse 17. Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk. So I direct in all the churches. Was any man called when he was already circumcised? He is not to become uncircumcised. Now that's kind of funny if you think about it. Paul is making a little joke here because becoming uncircumcised once you're circumcised really is not a thing. I'm not going to say any more about that. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? He is not to be circumcised. Circumcision's nothing. And uncircumcision, it's nothing. But what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. How were you when you gave your life to Jesus? What condition were you in? That's the one you ought to stay with. Well, so I I can never get married? I didn't say that. And again, we're going to come back and really dig into this later. But... Paul says, verse 21, were you called while you were a slave? Don't worry about it. Now, if you're also able to become free, rather do that, for he who has called in, who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free <laughs> is Christ's slave. You thought you were so free. If you gave your life to Jesus, you are his bond slave. Chain up. Verse 23, you were bought with a price. Remember that price, the blood of Christ. Don't become slaves of men. Brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. Stay put. Now, don't misunderstand this. God's not, Paul's not saying that if you're a drunk, well, then stay a Christian drunk because after all, that was the condition. No, when you were called, you were radically changed. You were transformed. You are, you are sanctified. He's talking about your condition of life. Were you called to Jesus while you were married, even when your spouse wasn't? Then stay married to her so that she can know Jesus like you do. Were you single when you were called? Perhaps you're a divorcee and you came to Christ and you didn't know Him before, but now you did and boom, your life has changed. Paul would say, stay that way. It's better. Are you remarried? Are you on your third or fourth marriage? But in that fourth marriage, let's say, for the first time in your life, you came to faith in Jesus. Stay there. Stay there. Don't divorce all your way back to try and get back to the first spouse. Stay in the condition in which you were called. And let God work on you right here. Stay put, he's saying. 
And this calls to mind a man that, that Jesus saved. And I think we're going to stop right here for tonight. I, I've got the whole chapter, but I, I want you to just stay with me on this final point. And we'll stop, we'll come back, and we'll finish up next, next week. Jesus. Jesus saved a man's life radically and told him to stay put. You know the story that I'm talking about? The man had a nickname, Legion. Jesus came to the the shore uh, of the Gerasenes and out comes this demoniac. He is cut, he's bleeding, he's got chains hanging off of him, he comes screaming out of the tombs and he is naked. Now, I would get back in the boat and start rowing (laughs) fast as I could. Jesus comes rushing up to him. He's calling out, What do you have to do with us, Son of the Most High God? And he says, What is your name? He calls him out, Legion, for we are many. Oh, don't send us into the pigs. And you know the story. It became the Bay of Pigs. (laughs) As he casts out the demons from the man, sends them into the pigs, they go rushing down, and next thing you have pork stew. There in the lake, all the pigs drown. It's just a great story. And the people of the area, by the way, this is part of the Decapolis, so they were all Gentiles, they come rushing out to see what's up. And they see him dressed, unchained, lucid, in his right mind, talking, normal, and it freaks them out because they knew what he was like. And they look at Jesus and they look at the man and the man says, yeah, he freed me. You have that kind of power? Get out of here. They beg Him to leave. Jesus obliges. He never forces Himself on anyone. He gets back in the boat. Mark chapter 5, verse 18. And this is stories told in in Matthew 5, Mark 5, Luke chapter 8. But Jesus gets into the boat. And I love the end of the story. The man who had been demon-possessed was imploring Him that He might accompany Him. And He did not let Him. I don't know of any other time in Jesus' ministry when someone said, can I follow you? And Jesus said, no. What did Jesus say? In essence, stay put. Stay put. He said, go home to your people and you tell them, you report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how He had mercy on you. I love the fact that Jesus did it. Jesus is the Lord. And yet Jesus has still given all the glory to God. What, a, what an example for us. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. And in Mark, the next time Jesus goes back to the region of the Decapolis, there are thousands there waiting for him. Because the man stayed put. Not all of us can. Not all of us, when we were called in a state of of singleness, can stay single. But it's worth considering. Not all of us in the state of having once been divorced, but now we're single in that waiting period, wondering, should I get remarried? Should I not? What should I do? Not all can accept that perhaps the best thing for you to do is just stay in that condition. But what Paul seems to be saying in this whole passage is if we would set our minds on the kingdom, that the best thing we can do is stay put. Live for Jesus right where we are. Bloom (laughs) where you're planted. And don't use your Christian faith as an excuse for escape. 
There is only one escape that we are called to look forward to. One great escape. And that is our escape to Jesus when He calls us home. And my friends, it can be any moment. And if we really believe that and we really live that way, then the decision to live a celibate lifestyle is not that difficult because Jesus could be here tonight. A decision to go home and honor my bride unselfishly, taking out the trash, which I know needs taken out. My friends, stay put and honor Jesus. Live life His way in the position, in the condition in which You are called. Let's pray together. Holy Father, oh, there's so much that is in this one chapter, so much that is rich and beautiful and and, and godly and, and wonderful. And I pray, Father, we won't miss it because we get stuck either in license or legalism. Then we get stuck thinking this is too hard or we get stuck thinking we've got to make this more difficult. Father, would You set us free from that and call us to the grace and the truth that is in Jesus Christ. That we preach and understand what is true. That we receive and live by the grace that He bought for us, Jesus, with every drop of Your blood on the cross. Help us tonight in our fellowship, right here, those present, to walk out of here not looking back at yesterday or the day before or the day before that, but looking forward to Your coming and content to stay put in the position in life to which we have been called. And may we, Father, be Jesus in that place. In Jesus' name. Amen.